Our scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Philippians, chapter 4, verses 2 through 9. I entreat Yodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Thank you, Molly. Well, it's uh, great to be with you again and be able to talk about a letter that has um, really been a most of our theme for the summer. I was watching, I don't know if you've seen this show before, it's a fun show called Comedians in Cars Getting Coffee. Uh, it's fun to watch and enjoyable <clears throat> and uh, to see just different comedians interact with Jerry Seinfeld who's the, the host. They get in a car and he usually picks a car that he thinks fits the the person he's picking up and, uh, and they talk about comedy. And it's not usually just funny. It's, sometimes it's about their, their life and their history and how they view comedy. It's pretty fascinating. There's one guy, um, and I probably mispronounce his last name, uh, Gad Elma. I don't know how you say his last name. Emile. Uh, he's actually French. Uh, but it was interesting. I saw his name on there and uh, watched his little episode. But I had heard of him before uh, on an episode of this American life called taking on a new identity. And uh, what does it mean to become something you're not? And uh, Gad was actually, he's actually a French comedian, uh, born in Morocco, but really uh, he grew up in, in uh, French culture. And um, he, was, he is considered by most the, one of the greatest, if not the greatest comedian uh, ever to come out of France. Hysterical. Uh, and in, in his own right. Now, he does a lot of physical comedy, apparently, and, and kind of very different. Well, he decided about, oh gosh, two, three years ago that he wanted to move to the States. He, he got really intrigued by American comedy and uh, wanted to move to the States and try his hand at, at these kind of things. Now, now, he starts going, and it shows a couple clips uh, you can see online where he actually goes and it says on uh, This American Life, he decided he wanted to make it in the U.S., so he started performing in English and working on his English while he was doing comedy. So can you imagine the, trying to work out the language in the midst of that, in the clubs and such? And it says that he was a, a certain comedy seller uh, and, and uh, he cautioned, that was part of his problem, he kept cautioning the crowd uh, that he was going to begin his set and he didn't really speak English. 
Now, that's kind of a buzzkill, like, right? It's not going to make you really funny. But the thing that was fascinating listening to his story on This American Life was about him trying to make it, trying to make sense of the differences between American comedy and French comedy and, and him trying to import things from what he did in France that made him huge. I mean, you can watch how he is just heralded. Like he comes out, he's one of those kind of guys that he walks out in, in Paris and people just start laughing. They don't even, he didn't even say anything. But he comes here and he's like, I don't speak English. People are like, why are you here? You know, and he's, he's trying to understand the mind of the American comic. He's trying to take it in. And it's fascinating to, to hear him talk about it, how difficult it is to understand the, the culture, the mindset, to, to, to see it through the American comic lens. If there's a theme that's threaded through this passage, it's this. It's trying to take on a new mind. This passage uses that language to say, we need to understand a new mind. And it can be very foreign to us. Very difficult. Almost like learning a new language. And it even begins with a very upfront and personal disagreement between two very powerful women in the church. And Paul holds nothing back as he kind of is starting to land the plane of his letter to say, hey, how are you actually practicing taking on the mind of what it means to follow Jesus in life? Whether that's in conflict, whether that's with anxiety, whether that's with just engaging the world, how are you doing that? Because it can be very difficult, and yet this is the deal. Look, the, the, the number one topic these days really is, is Christianity relevant? I mean, is it, is it purposeful? Is it useful? And people are asking that all over the place. I would ask you the same question. And maybe you're here coming as someone who is uh, trying on Christianity again, or maybe you aren't, wouldn't consider yourself a Christian. You walked in and were kind of like, oh, maybe I'll you know, try this thing out, this Christian thing, or you listen about what it's like. And if you're here hearing that, the, the, the thing that Paul is wanting these readers to get, he's writing a letter from prison. He's not with them to say, let me help you. He's saying, are you putting on this mind, learning to live the Christian life? Is it practical? Is it coming out? Is everything we've talked about from chapters one, two, and three applying in the way that chapter four works. It's usually called the indicative to the imperative. The fact that you are a Christian, that the backwards nature of what Christianity is and that most people think is that you do Christian things and that's what makes you a Christian. Paul says no. Chapters one, two, and three are all about who you are in Jesus. So then four, you start seeing a lot more about how do you live this out? What does it mean for you to practically live as someone who has the mind of Christ? And it addresses realities in your life as he brings up three realities here. And that's going to be really the points of this is really the partnership in the church. What does it mean for partners as he uses that language to go against each other? What about peace and even dresses anxiety within our own hearts? Which, gosh, if there's an epidemic in our Culture, anxiety is one of those massive ones. And then finally, how do you practice it? How do you practice looking at the world with glasses that make sense of this? Jobs, art, sports, family, friendships. How do you look at those things? What does it mean to do that? He begins here 
right out of the gate in verse 2. He says, I entreat Yodia and Syntyche to agree in the Lord. There is an issue going on in the church. And I think it's interesting. Put yourself in this position. Can you imagine? They would take this letter and read it to the church. So what if I had a letter with two of your names in it and I read it from up front? I was like, so-and-so and so-and-so we really encourage you to agree. Would you be like, uh, don't know if I can handle this church or not. Do you see what he's getting at? He's saying there's a deep importance to this. These two women who are of great uh, power in the church and great influence were a part of his ministry who really helped Paul with kind of the material needs he had while he was in church. But apparently there was something, because the church had been formed some time ago, this was a disagreement that probably wasn't just an immediate one. It was something that happened over time. And isn't that what usually happens? I think it's encouraging, and it should be to us, the fact that the, letter, the letters that Paul is writing is not some whimsical thing that the church is some ideal. He pulls out two people's names to say, there's division in the church. Couldn't we say the same? There are people, maybe even in this room, I'm not certain, that could see one another as they walk in and say, I have real issues with that person. I mean, I had a dream, and many of you may have had this. I had a dream the other night, if I'm being frank, that I thought of a person that came in my conscience that I have had divisions with from years, years past, that just clouded my, it was like a nightmare. And it brought up in my conscience all these things about me. So I woke up the next morning, I was like, like this. You've probably had that. Was those people that you see, and this is not talking about just people that you're in conflict with. It's about people that you share possibly the gospel with, share the name Jesus with, and yet you show complete division and, and discrepancy. If there's something that, that people would look at the church and say, why would I want to be a part of that? Is to say, if these people who say they follow Jesus can't get along, why in the world would I want to do that? If I can't be a partner with them, if I can't move in, and here's what he says, and this is, this is what's interesting. When he talks about this, that they agree in the Lord, he uses this language. Because what usually happens is we take that, there's something that, that has come between them to agree. It doesn't mean that they agree on everything. But there's some small nuance of their relationship, something that came in as, as a grain of sand and it began to really press them apart. It's kind of like a characterization where we idealize or demonize parts of those people that we have conflict with. I'm about to go visit my parents in Texas, my family, and I, there's a character drawing that I had done of me uh, years ago that, that, you know, someone sat and sketched. You ever had a sketch artist sketch you? And the hardest thing about having somebody sketch you is you begin to see features of yourself that you would not want to see. And I still see this drawing hanging in my bedroom of, at my parents' house, which is so, like, maybe they want it as a reminder for me. Um, to, of all these features, I'm like, do I really look like that? Does my nose look like that? Do my ears look like I have teeny? What is, that's so weird. But that's what we do. We essentially characterize those people around us. Maybe it's a small conflict. It, maybe it's not something that rubbed you the wrong way so much that you can't stand them, but enough to where you go, that person is that, and you inflate that part of them. That is conflict. That is disorder. 
It's interesting that one theologian said it this way, to lick your wounds, to smack your lips over grievances long past, to roll over your tongue, get that image in here, roll over your tongue the prospect of bitter confrontation still to come, to savor the last toothsome morsel, both the pain you are given and the pain you are giving back. In many ways, it is a feast fit for a king. And yet the chief drawback is that what you are wolfing down is yourself. The skeleton at the feast is you. You see, the the small ways, and and we may not even be mindful, and this is why he wants you to, he says, take on the mind of this, right? He uses language even that backs up to the second chapter when it talks about the mind of Jesus. He says to agree in the Lord. He's not saying that you have to agree on everything, but here's what it means. The language means having sympathetic interest or concern, hearkening back to Jesus's mind. Do you think Jesus agrees with everything we are and do? But what does he do? He presses in. The agreement is the gospel itself. It's the truth that we both are in need and that we both matter. And that when these two come together, that they lay their ego at the door. David Brooks said this well in his articles, he said, on conflict and ego. Clearly, the best way to respond is to step out of the game that we play. It's to get out of the status competition. Enmity is a nasty frame of mind. Pride is painful. And the person who can quiet the self can see the world clearly, can learn the subject and master the situation. Historically, we reserve special admiration for those who can quiet the self in the heat of conflict. Here's what it is. Addressing the reality. Quieting the self. Do you quiet enough? This is what I was saying earlier. Quiet enough to realize what you're trying on, what you're really wolfing down is yourself. Who are those people in your life that you have dreams about, that come to your conscience, that you see walking by, are you seeing a Target or a Publix or drive by you on the street and you recognize their car and it causes a moment in you of, and yet these are people that even in this language it says, that they've labored side by side and that their names are in the book of life. Where are we displaying, if we consider ourselves followers of Jesus, laying aside self to partner together to address the conflicts between us? Where are we doing that? It doesn't mean we have to agree. We can even not agree on everything. That's not the point of what the language agreement is. The language of agreement is looking above the, the list you have of why this person doesn't meet your criteria. It's the criteria of the cross. Notice in here it says, yes, I, also, I, yes, I ask you also true companion. There's a, a person here that's unidentified, but I think for a reason. And it's because we need mediators. You notice to address this conflict, we need, there's a mediator needed because the difference in Christianity handling conflict and anything else, it means Jesus is the mediator to show us how to relate to one another instead of how that person relates to us. See, instead of looking at that person in conflict and, and basing their worth and value 
on what we ascribe to them, we have to look through someone else, particularly Jesus, to base their worth on. It doesn't mean we may not have disagreement. It doesn't mean we may not even have pain or hurt from that person or vice versa. But it means we have to take on new lenses. It means we have to think differently. And it also means it teaches us to approach one another humbly and kind. And it means if we really are realizing this, even if this person, and you can read it all through the Bible, Paul himself has disagreements with some of the great apostles that their names are written all through this and they, you don't see them speak to one another again. You see conflict all through the Bible. But how do they handle it? It's not saying that they're worthless or their value is detracted. They may say, you know what, we have disagreement. We are going to part ways. But when they part, they always know they are partners in the gospel. Partners in the good news of Jesus. One of the greatest stories I know of this is of the uh, first great awakening with George Whitfield. Now, some of you may not know your history, but the first great awakening uh, in the early 19th century um, was really an incredible force of when preachers were coming to particularly America and um, were, were literally delivering the gospel to thousands. And people were hearing it left and right. And, and through that, there were major preachers, that being George Whitfield and John Wesley. So Wesley it may remind you of the names we get a lot of hymns from. But these two really differed. I mean, sharp disagreements on theological terms. And a reporter, George Whitfield, if you read anything on him or John Wesley, they, I mean, we're, when we say thousands, we're saying they would preach upward to like 30,000 people without microphones. Can you imagine that? Insane amounts of people wanting to hear. Benjamin Franklin heard George Whitfield and was just astounded by who he was. Never became a Christian, but was just thundered by it. And, and George and John Wesley and George Whitfield sharply divided. Everybody knew it. Everybody was like, what? What is y'all's deal? And a reporter came and asked Whitfield this. He said, Reverend, do you think you'll see John Wesley in heaven? And here's what George Whitfield said back. No, I do not. And the reporter said, what? George Whitfield answered, he said, because I believe that John Wesley will be so close to the bosom of God so close to his throne that we will not even be able to see him for the surrounding glory. Here's somebody who sharply disagreed, some of the most, that what we would consider titans of faith and theology. And yet the humility of that, are we willing to receive that as partners, as the Bible calls us partners? And that's the struggle and conflict without the mind we need to take without with one another. But what about within? He moves from that, not just to those outside, but he says, rejoice in the Lord always. Verse four, again, I say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. He moves from out to in, the heart, the conflict, the peace from partners to peace. And if there's anything that is interesting here that he describes, it is anxiety. The word even in verse five, let your reasonableness be known to everyone, is actually a word that means, can you submit your heart to injustice, disgrace, maltreatment, hatred, malice, and trusting in God in spite of all of it. In fact, 
In short, it means, are you a person that's not easily offended? In the face of conflict, or maybe you pursue it, are you a person who's not easily offended? Reasonableness is displaying a character, a mindset of someone who's not trying to be a thorn in everyone's side, but someone who brings peace and, and, and to bring care around us. And he moves on from that to even anxiety because I think there's definitely a link. I mean, as much as we may look at the Bible, is, is the Bible have anything, you know, knowledge of, you know, you know psychoanalytic, uh, psychoanalytic uh, character? I don't think that it, the Bible at all is speaking against it at all uh, our need for therapeutic help or even medicine. But it's addressing the heart of these things in a whole different way. It's saying there's something coupled to that. There's something deeper. Because we are easily offended. Because we are so careful and anxious about everything around us that we live with a tension of anxiety. And the Bible, and often we can read it, especially when Jesus talks about this as well in the Sermon on the Mount. Do not be anxious. And we think, oh, okay. You know, and, and so many have looked at Christianity in the Bible and said, is it minimizing my anxiety? I mean, I'm a Christian and yet I'm anxious. How do I deal with these things? No, the Bible doesn't do that. The Bible is not anti, you know, anxiety. It, it actually addresses it. In fact, even more so, he connects anxiety here to prayer, which I think is interesting. Because what he's doing is not saying prayer is, you shouldn't have anything else but. But he's saying it should recalibrate the way you understand this world because you're not the king of it. Anxiety puts control into our hands. And it doesn't say you won't be anxious. It says you will be. But what it does is it causes you to look at the, at the world and say, what if about everything? What if this happens? What if that doesn't work? Or what if this person rejects me? Or what if this, it's the what if question. C.S. Lewis in his book, Screwtape Letters said it beautifully. He said, there's nothing like suspense and anxiety for barricading a human's mind against the enemy. He calls enemy God in that. He wants men to be concerned with what they do or the, our business is to keep them thinking about what will happen to them. Anxiety presses in on those things. It calls us to say that, well, we got to take control. And if I don't take control of this, then... What will happen to me? What Paul is saying is with all the stuff that's surrounding, he's saying prayer redirects us to our reality in God. Look, there's been all these studies, you can read them everywhere, about physiologically how prayer actually does reduce chemicals in your brain. It slows you down and those kind of things. But it's redirecting you actually to a person, not to a chemical. There's a fascinating article in Real Simple magazine, in, uh, just last edition, on, uh, on this. And listen to this. This is interesting. Called Unplug and Recharge. When asked research psychologist Larry Rosen, PhD, about why so-called smartphone addiction is widespread, he corrected my terminology. This is not really an addiction. It's an anxiety-based disorder. Now, they're talking about our smartphones. And, and those moments, and you'll hear why. 
We're not checking in to get pleasure. We're checking to remove anxiety. Those moments where you're sitting, not just, you know, like you have something to do, but you, you take a moment. You have a space in your, in your day. Maybe it's 30 seconds and you just want to scroll on your phone. It's why do we do that? Why do we pull, why are our phones in our hands all those times? For what it's worth, this addiction point is up for debate. Many experts say the buzz-like reward we feel with every like and notification keeps us coming back for more, much like a caffeine or nicotine addiction. But here's what I thought was interesting. Similar to the way many of us grab a drink or a snack at a party to avoid feeling socially awkward though, most of us gravitate toward our phones for comfort and distraction when we're confronted with everyday uncomfortable emotions. Think of this, standing in line at a grocery store, boredom. Waiting for a friend at a restaurant, impatience or social anxiety. Missing family, loneliness. An essential step in developing a healthier relationship with our devices is relearning how to get comfortable with boredom, social anxiety, loneliness, and other unpleasant feelings. The phone has allowed us not to tolerate boredom anymore. And when the urge strikes you while you're waiting for a movie to, to start, don't grab your phone. Just let your mind wander and it's really difficult to do. I find that article fascinating because what would it be like if instead of reaching for our phones, we practiced actually trying on the mind of moving towards prayer? Here's why. It's not just a, a hokey thing. I think this is fascinating. It's saying... Prayer is not about avoiding your anxiety. It's actually about dealing with it. Here's the difference between prayer and just not looking at your phone. Not looking at your phone may have your mind wander, but how are you pressing in on the anxious things? Pressing in on your boredom. Prayer forces you to look at your feelings and take them to a person, a God who wants to hear them and manage them with you. That is a very powerful thing. If you want to learn peace, if you want to put on the mind of peace, you don't put on a mind of avoidance. That's not what Christianity is about. The Bible never says that. In fact, it says prayer drives you to look at your anxiety. But in everything, prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. What is he saying? He's saying cry out to him. In those moments, what, I want to challenge you. When you're in the line of the grocery store, when you're in the movie, when you're in certain spaces and you have that opportunity to touch your phone, take a moment to just pray, God, why do I always want to distract myself? What if we did try on the mind of putting prayer in that place first? It doesn't mean you should never check your phone. But that we start controlling our phones rather than it controlling us. Just like anything. Our phone is just one in many of the lists that we think will give us peace. And yet he's saying prayer, connection, talking to the Lord is what gives you that. It's what Martin Luther used to say to his friend Philip Melanchthon. Martin Luther, the great reformer. He had a friend named Philip Melanchthon who was always worrying and Luther would just come up with his hand and put his hand on his shoulder and look at him and say, Philip, cease to be king. Where are those moments where you need prayer to approach the Lord and for him to grasp your heart and say, cease to be king? Dethroning anxiety. We have a resource in this God. 
And here's the final thing that I think is amazing. Is that he calls us to practice. You know, my mom, um, <clears throat> she wears, I'm sure, I don't know if she's listening to this recording, but I think she'll be okay with this. Many of you in this room may be like this. She wears multiple glasses. So she'll have like a, a glasses here, glasses here and glasses here, right? Sunglasses. And it's interesting because she'll have to like shift them, right? There's not like a transition or like one lens that has like three things on it. You know, some of you may have that. I don't know if they make them. But it's fascinating because she's having to look at everything around her through three different sets of glasses. This last passage is fascinating because listen, it says, finally, brothers, whatever's true, whatever's honorable, whatever's just, whatever's pure, whatever's lovely, whatever's commendable, if there's excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen me practice these things and God of peace will be with you. He lists a list of virtues that only actually Philippian Roman citizens would know. And then he says, you know what? The difference is in just understanding. Everybody want peace? That's great. You want a peace from your anxiety? That's great. Instead of listing the virtues, he finishes with what? He doesn't say, and the peace from God will be with you. He says, no, no, no. Learned and received all from the gospel. What makes sense of any of these virtues of partnering in conflict and peace and anxiety comes through the God of peace being with you. It's through one set of glasses. If you try and come to this table and think of this as any sort of meal, just one in a litany of glasses to make sense of your life, you're going to miss it. I don't even encourage you not to come take it. The point of this meal is that the God of peace meets you here. He's saying we need to practice looking through one set of lenses. We need to make sense. Look, God doesn't want to be number one on your priority list. He doesn't want church to be number one. He doesn't. Did you know that? If you read any of the gospels, what he says is, I want you to make sense of all your priorities through me. Through me. This meal should make sense of every other meal. This meal should make sense of every other thing that you partake in in this world. Because the God of peace is here. Not just come and have peace. Come and have the God of peace. That is what this table is about. Prepare your hearts for that. Practice this. Take it on. This is a whole nother mindset. And it may be foreign to you. If it is foreign to you this morning, I'd encourage you not to come take. If it is one of those things you're like, I don't know what I think about this stuff. I'd encourage you to remain in your seat or come forward and fold your hands and receive prayer because many have and encourage you about that. It's, it's, it's with integrity to take on that mindset and come to this table. And if you're here this morning and you would say, I follow Christ, come to this table as not one who just wants a list of virtues, but a partaker, an active participant with the one who is called the God of peace. Let's stand together now and let's read.